This episode is brought to you by eBay. This Father's Day, celebrate the guy who always makes the time with Rolex, Omega, Breitling, and more. Find modern and vintage watches with the authenticity guarantee at ebay.com. This episode is brought to you by the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. It's hard to have a friend who's a slow eater because when you finish your McChicken sandwich, watching them finish their McDouble cheeseburger and small fries can be excruciating until they notice you staring and offer up a few fries. That must be what friends are for. There's a deal for every moment on the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. Get a McChicken sandwich, McDouble cheeseburger, four piece chicken McNuggets, or small fries for just a few bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any offer or combo meal. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Forgive me for running off the find the one thing I have to do. This is episode ninety eight of the Washed Up Emo Podcast. I'm Tom Mullen from WashedUpEmo.com. Today, proud and happy to welcome Matt Wilson, vocalist from the band Set Your Goals. I know you're going to enjoy episode 98 of the Washed Up Emo Podcast with Matt Wilson of Set Your Goals. Matt, thank you for being on the podcast. First off, set your goals. You have seen points already with Washed Up Emo because you've named it after a Civ album. Yeah, we did. <laughs> um, it's, it's really the only name we could all agree on. Um, but yeah, like Gorilla Biscuits is my favorite hardcore band of all time. I've always thought Civ was an awesome lyricist. And obviously, we're all big fans of Civ, too. So, And that that record, that record... Um, also had one of the best music videos for Can't Wait One Minute More. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that where he's like, he's wearing the creepers and everything? He's in the suit? Yeah. It's so good. I haven't seen that since like, I don't even know. It's probably been 15 years since I watched that video. I got, I got to be honest. I, have... I watched it two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I remember bits and pieces. So um, how... D- I guess you grew up in the San Francisco area, or is, or is that where you guys all Yeah, formed? yeah. I, I grew up in the East Bay. Uh, that's where we all started. And if, so what kind, yeah, what kind of stuff, like you said, Siv, you've mentioned, you know, Gorilla Biscuits. Was that, was that someone handing you, like, the Rev 25 comp, or, like, what kind of was the catalyst to you getting into that stuff? Well, I'm 34, so I, I'm a little older than people probably think our band is, I guess. Um, so I, I, and I got into like hardcore and punk really, really young. Like I was, I think 11 when I started going to shows at Gilman 11. Street. Yeah. No shit. Your parents so, let you go at 11. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Wilson. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if that makes them bad parents, but yeah, thanks guys. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, my best friend and I at the time, uh, we we started going to shows and shortly thereafter, you know, he started booking shows and I would help him out. Like, um, what were some of the first shows we booked? We would book shows at this place called the Danville Grange. And, uh, we book a lot of local bands that a lot of people probably haven't heard of, but, um, like Barrett, the Bane side project came to town once we helped book that show. I think we helped book the, uh, the clear show at Salt Lake straight edge band when they came to town um so you know it it just sort of like kind of progressed until i i started a band with with uh with jordan actually i met him at a newfound glory show when i was in my first year of college through a a mutual friend and uh he would start sending me these riffs and i was like oh these are really catchy you know like we should we should start a pop punk band with breakdowns which is like the corniest thing in the world but um here we are (laughs) <laughs> well that's you know, the part years later or whatever <laughs> you know what's interesting you you kind of like summed it up but i think it's worth noting like when i first heard you guys it was like okay this is pop punk and then 
I was like listening in the background. I was like, oh, they're throwing in breakdowns. Let me go a little Google. Let me like find a little more about them. And it kind of, again, it makes sense that it's, it's that like hardcore nature that of your, of your youth and sort of this, I want to have a catchy song. It's that sort of back and forth. You know, when we, when we started doing it, uh, we were like, oh, we'll just play local hardcore shows. And it was like a fun thing. Cause there was another band in our area who had already done that called towards an end, but they were a little more on the emo side. And, uh, but they, they all had, they had like a soft spot for pop songs. They, they really liked like NXPX and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, when I was in like probably eighth grade, a friend of mine told me about newfound glory and saves the day. And we were like, man, these fans are really good, but they sell it in the rock section. We're not used to not shopping in the punk section at the, at the record store. So, um, yeah, we, we've, always just sort of had a soft spot for for pop punk and i think i think that's probably true of a lot of hardcore kids um everyone's got that little tendency and and for you guys to you know still have the little hardcore roots in it i think is great um and then you know for you guys playing shows was it at that time oh four oh five that was that was heyday um for a lot of bands um and it seemed like a lot of bands were getting picked up by bigger labels and it seemed to be uh, it's, it seemed like, uh, the pool was getting bigger. Absolutely. Like, and you know, that's kind of part of, I guess was part of the motivation for, for starting the band. I was like, man, music is like the standards, the bar is really low right now. So we can be, we can be pretty terrible and still probably do. Okay. <laughs> so we started this band and it, you know, that's when the internet was kind of blowing up too, like message boards and all that stuff. And social media was just starting really just starting. <laughs> and uh, so we set up like a MySpace and we set up a, a hardcore MP3 account and, you know, we posted it on a, on a couple message boards like the B9 and stuff and it just kind of blew up. Kids were like, whoa, you need to come to my city. So we started booking our own tours and we, we picked up enough steam to, you know, have agents and, and managers interested in us and it kind of took off from there. Um, I mean, think, I mean, you're probably thinking back now, but how archaic was all that? Like getting the word out was on message boards and that kind of way, but that's how that's where kids were communicating. Yeah, looking back now, it's like kind of insane. It's like things have changed so much since then. You know what I mean? It's kind of shocking. And then like um, waiting, you know, the waiting part. The waiting part, right? The the touring was even different. Like, you know, we would leave for tour and we would print out like a what looked like an encyclopedia of of just pieces of paper of MapQuest directions, and then you know someone rolls down the window like third day of tour and everything blows out the window and you're like, fuck, like, what do we do now? How do we get to the next show? We had the whole tour routed out on MapQuest. It's like now you just pull out your phone. So everything's changed. Technology has changed so much since then. And it's kind of crazy to think that like our, our band and, and our generation is kind of the last people who were alive before the internet blew up. Yeah, well, that's that gets brought up a lot on the podcast. Is that you've got this sort of you knew it before you ex, you were sort of in the beginning stages, and now you're used to it, and you can kind of think back to oh yeah, I remember when I didn't have this, and I think it gives a nice context to, and maybe sometimes it centers you. Sometimes it does to me, um, where it's like I don't need to bring my phone. <laughs> right, it gives you like a nice, well-rounded perspective on things. <laughs> What about the longevity of the band and you guys, you know, you had a little hiatus for a little bit, but being able to do it for that long, what were some of those things that worked for you guys as you got deeper in the business? Like you said, booking agent, you know, publicist, labels, all those things. What were some of those things that, you know, helped uh, make it work? Um, kind of just getting to know who we are as a band and, and realizing what we can do ourselves and what we can't, what we need help with, you know, and like, the things that we do and don't know best, you know what I mean? Like if a label is in a position to help us because they can get us distro, we're not like above that. You know what I mean? And we were never above like anything that would uh, expose us to more people. And we got a lot of flack for that. You know, there was, I remember it was like within a six month period, you could not say anything bad about set your goals on the B9 board without getting just slammed. Like everyone would attack you. Like they were like a pack of wolves. And then, Fast forward six months later, and if you said anything like remotely complimentary towards us, it was like, "Oh, you're so lame! Like that band's 
that band's whack. Like they sold out, you know, because we were at that point starting to get bigger tours. We were touring with like less than Jake. We were getting warp tour offers and we had kind of like expanded to a larger audience. And that didn't really sit right with a lot of the hardcore crowd, of course. So it's a delicate thing to kind of like figure out how to, how to push ourselves and how to, I don't know, state, not how to stay true because we knew how to do that. We knew what we wanted to do, but how to not look like jerks to everyone in the process for wanting to, for wanting to play to bigger crowds. And have a career. But at the same time, we never knew how to categorize ourselves. Yeah, and how to like survive off what we were doing. Like, oh, for once we can pay our bills. Were there things that you had wish you were told when you, when, when you started? Like, hey, look out for this or hey, watch out for this. Well, I didn't expect to make money, but I think that's something that I would pass on to a lot of younger kids now who who do expect to make money. Uh, that like, if you're gonna look for a career in music, there's not really any money in it, so don't expect to get rich or even make money. Um, and I, I see a lot of like bands in the Warp Tour world these days sort of uh, going that route. It's it's almost like they treat it like a like a business rather than a, a passion. Why do you think that's the case? Why, why do you think that happens? Are they, did they see that it was popular at a certain time and they're like, well, we're just going to sound like that? Or do you feel like they're just being business people? I think some of them are, you know, they're like entrepreneurial minded. Uh, and I think a lot of them just see these bands on Warped Tour just going through this like almost cookie cutter formula uh, over and over and over, and they think, oh, well, I can do this. And, you know, some of them do do it, and some of them don't. But it seems like in music, there's, like, two kinds of people, and there's people who look at it, people who do it for music, and there's people who do it for business. Um, and you can you can usually, you know, tell which, which one is which, especially in the Warped Tour crowd. And it's funny because, like, a lot of these Warped Tour bands are, like, bands that I would consider pop-punk, are by today's standards considered emo. So it kind of all comes full circle. Yes. Um, I actually saw a tweet from Anthony Green today that said, your emo isn't the same as my emo. Yeah, it's like, that's so spot on. <laughs> like, I've DJed emo night a few times, and it's, it's like I couldn't get away with playing emo there because nobody would, would even know the songs, much less understand that it's actually emo, which I guess is the premise of your whole website <laughs> yeah i mean the is this band emo was you know started a couple years ago because of that uh partly because of that but yeah i think you bring up that you know anthony green kind of posting that which i was surprised he even did it um i thought he had kind of i think he did some charity things around it which 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 helped but uh yeah i mean those 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 events are make a lot of money there's booking agents there's publicists there's people that are are making a lot of money and the people that are going and I'd love your take on this they're a fan that liked a song or an album but not the band if that makes sense yeah i think that does make sense it's almost the same mindset as like i enjoy live music not like music is my life yeah <laughs> And that the you know the I, I am proponent of people making a living and have you know have fun and do it. There's this, but it's almost like like you talked earlier about like you can't say anything about your band on those message boards, and then at a certain point, like there's all this backlash. I think it's sometimes opposite. Like they're like, hey, we're just doing our thing. We're just playing music. We're we're having a great time, and and it's a party. All right, don't call it emo night then, because it's not. Right. Uh, if if you want to pop punk night, call it pop punk <laughs> night. This is, uh, that's what I've always told um, the Brooklyn night. I've told the LA guys. I was like, if you just call it pop punk night, I'll leave you alone. I'll stop calling you out for not actually playing emo and playing the Killers or Avril Lavigne. Um, you know, it's it, <laughs> right. it's it's like you you. It's one, and again, that permeates through other things. Press the newspaper will write an article and say it's this and the wrong bands are attributed to that. When in reality, I'm not saying you need to play Sunny day real estate at 11 PM when people are shit faced. I'm just saying, understand the whole history and maybe there's a chance to turn someone on to something else. 
and they might say there's a side stage. They might say that they do it at the beginning, but when it comes down to it, they're playing, you know, that stuff. And I just, I guess it goes back to that warp tour thing you talked about where it's like, what, what are you doing this for? And you've latched onto the name, which is kind of like the part that I think for you guys that are actually like a pop punk band, it kind of hurts you too. Absolutely. I mean, even the term pop punk is like a weird one because it's like, it started with these bands like screeching weasel and even the lifetime would maybe be considered kind of like that, but it evolved into something completely different. Um, so yeah. And, and hardcore too, you know, like fans will be like, or you'll see like alternative press who used to cover some of the sweetest bands in the world. Now they cover almost strictly the warp tour ba- bands and, uh, they'll be like, Oh, post hardcore rockers falling in reverse. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> if there was no money in it at all for us, we would obviously still do it. And we did do that for the first decade. Um, but you know, now that we all have careers outside of the band, cause we took three years off, it's, it's a lot more relaxed. It's kind of like we can, we can just play shows and not worry about the money, which is funny because now the guarantees are better that we came back. Well, did you think if, if, if you didn't do that hiatus, would you guys, you guys would have broken up or would have not have been like this. Do you feel like that, that time away helped? Uh, yeah, I do. I think it helped our morale for sure. We were all pretty burnt out. And, uh, Jordan, what happened is Jordan snapped his Achilles on stage, uh, in December of 2012, I believe it was. And, uh, you know, it's a gnarly surgery. Like he had this like bone defect on both of his ankles or on his heels or whatever, and they were, they were kind of rubbing against his Achilles tendon. One of them snapped on stage. The other one was ready to go. So he needed surgery on both of them. Your body can't even handle the stress of having both surgeries at once. So he, has to do, he had to do one at a time, and they take like six months of recovery each, best case scenario. So he was kind of checked out at that point. We were all kind of burnt out because we had just been touring so rigorously. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like, well, here's our excuse to to pump the brakes for a little while and maybe we'll come back to it and maybe we won't we're just going to leave it open-ended so we didn't make an announcement like hey we broke up because we didn't uh we just didn't know what the timeline was for coming back we just all knew that at some point we wanted to continue to do it whether or not we put out new music and now we're writing and and you know we figured the 10-year anniversary of mutiny was a, a good opportunity to come back so we we started in February of uh, 2016. We started playing shows again. It's so much more chill now. You know, we play a couple of shows every month or two, and it's fun, and it's not something that stresses us out, and it's not too much to handle, and we really look forward to it more than ever. When I was talking to American Football, they were saying, I mean, there's a little different. There's sort of like fly in, play two shows, fly back, but they, they kind of called kinda it. That's what we're doing. Yeah. yeah <laughs> though, so it is similar. So they were kind of just saying it's sort of like a little summer camp. You know, they've they've got their real life and they totally. kind of go away for the weekend and they come back and, you know, Kinsella always, you know, uh, Mike would always joke. He's like, I am, as soon as I step off that plane, I am dad. You know, I am, pick up the milk, you know, <laughs> go get the kids. Like, you know, there's 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 no rock star when he gets back. <laughs> right. And, and our guitarist, Junior, just had his second kid. It's the same same thing with him, you know. What is everybody up to? How does that, I mean, that takes a lot to work between everybody's schedules and work and taking time off. Um, what What is everybody up to that kind of lets lends that um, for you guys to be able to do that? Joe lives in, well, a lot of us moved away since we started kind of taking a break. Joe lives in Portland. Uh, he works at a like a craft canning factory. Um, Dan moved to Atlanta and bought a house with his wife, and uh, he teaches guitar. Uh, Junior works for AKT Printing, like merch. Uh, he lives in LA. I also live in LA. I uh, am actually a portfolio manager. I trade the stock market, and uh, Jordan is in school. Uh, up in the Bay Area, and then Mike builds craft tables in the Bay Area. So we are all over the place, but we're fortunate enough to be able to, you know, take like a week off here and there in all of our careers, more or less. That's great. And again, it, I, I think the reason I asked that and how varied it was is that, you know, as a band and as someone creating music, if you love it and you've got friends that you've, you know, uh, you want to create music with, it can work. Um, and it doesn't need to be this full-time thing if you don't want it to be. Have those expectations. Um, 
Absolutely. It really comes down to, is it a passion of yours? And if it is, you'll make time for it. And a lot of people don't realize that. They're like, oh, I want to be in a band or I want to be in a band like yours. And it's like, well, you're not willing to be in a band like ours because you're not willing to make time to to practice even once a month or once a week, you know? And I I know because I'm in another band now (laughs) and it's with total civilians and they're like, oh, well, I can't practice this week. And it gets pushed back. And before you know it, it's been six months without a practice. And you're like, well, we're never going to get anything done. And that would never happen with Set Your Goals because we know if we want to book these shows, we got to be, we got to be on point and we got to practice to do that. So we just make time. What other advice would you give bands that are, I don't know, in a transition? They've got a job or they've got a kid, but they still want to play music or they're just out of high school or they, you know, any sort of uh, words of wisdom on making it work. Don't be a dick. You know, like burning bridges and music is is not, it's funny, but it's true. Like, it's true. If you're not friendly with people, like no one's going to like you, no one's going to help you out. And it really is a business of like social networking. Like, you know, we have a lot of friends in the music world and a lot of us have been around in the music world and involved in it for a long time. And I think that's really made a big difference for us. You know, people, you know, and, and we're really outgoing and we're, we're approachable people. And I think, some amazing bands just don't succeed because they're just kind of dicks uh, <laughs> and no one wants to help them out. Um, and uh, other than that, I guess I would say uh, tour touring is like how you expose yourself. It's like, it's like if you're, if you're Donald Trump, if you're a politician, you know, the way you, you get votes is you, is grassroots, you know, you got to go door to door and let people know you exist. It's kind of the same thing. You got to tour, you got to play shows, and, uh, you know, these days with 360 deals and all that, there's, there's not a lot of opportunities to make even a living or even pay, pay off band expenses, uh, making music, unless you're, you're playing shows and selling merch every night. You know, merch is kind of the lifeblood to the touring lifestyle and to the band. And, uh, you know, no one makes money off record sales anymore because no one buys records. So, you know, we're in the, we're in the digital age. Everyone wants to just, post something on on social media and be like you know kind of just wipe their hands clean and say oh i've done my work for the day but no you got to get out there and you got to actually do it who who even like puts up physical flyers anymore like i don't know <laughs> but people who do probably you know it probably pays off but you know the social media world's always ever evolving too and it's it's always ever changing like Facebook like doesn't I don't I don't check Facebook as much as I did five years ago that's for sure which is here's the other thing too about being a band is you don't own that if Facebook magically something happens and it goes away tomorrow all that's gone Instagram all yeah. that's gone what you own is your 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 email list your website you know your one-to-one connection with your fan if it's uh you know direct to consumer you know if it's merch and those kind of things you have that connection to them and it's that's the part that it's like someone's like, oh, I got a Facebook page, Instagram. I'm like, do you have their email? Do you have, you know, are you, uh, is there anything that, you know, you're connecting with them on a one-to-one level that's not in between someone that you're using for free in quotes. And it's like, if that goes away tomorrow, there goes your most valuable tool, you know, like, but something else, you know, as, as I said, like it's always evolving. Yeah. Something else will pop up in its place because the demand is there. Yes, you're right. As soon as something goes away, something like Friendster into MySpace, into Facebook, into whatever's after that. Um, I mean, how long has Facebook been around? Like a decade now? Yeah, or a little bit more. It's like, yeah, more than a decade. And they know, you know, there's a reason they didn't start charging and they know it's because if they did, everyone would just move on. Did you all, I think I read that you had started your own label. Yeah, I did. Um, we signed to, to Eulogy. That was the first label we signed to. And uh, when we did, they were going to put out Mutiny, and they wanted to repress our demo. And we're like, okay, well, since you're paying for Mutiny, you guys will have the rights to that. But you didn't record our demo. We did. So th- I think we gave them the rights for like seven years. And once that was lifted, we had pressing rights again. So I was like, we should take advantage of this and have the money go to the band, especially since Eulogy had been just ripping us off for years. Like, they've never sent us a dime for anything they've done, you know. And uh, we wanted to kind of basically take that record back. So I was like, all right, well, I'll just press it. So I started this label, and I I set up like a, 
a kind of, uh, what was it? It was Kickstarter. I set up a Kickstarter as like a, a way to pre-order the record. And I was like, okay, if this thing does well, I'll get enough pre-orders and I'll, I'll get it going. And if not, then we just won't do it. And so it, we did. And, uh, and then I pressed the records and I made them as cool as possible. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what started that. And then, uh, you know, I realized I kind of just sort of learned as I went, you know, and I, I had friends who had started labels. You know, my friend Jeff started, uh, started run for cover. And then I had my buddy Joey started 6131. My buddy Jake did pure noise. So like I had a lot of resources at my disposal. I was like, I can do this. <laughs> You're like, I got enough people I can call on. Right. And my old roommate, Kyle, actually um, had this hardcore label called Rivalry. And I was living with him when he started the label. So, and my friend Duncan, yeah, I don't know. I, I know a lot of people who started labels actually. Now that <laughs> but, um, I was reaching out to all of them and I was like, you know, what's the best place to press things and, and this and that. So, um, I did that. And then, uh, I realized how much work it is and how expensive it is. And, uh, which was all fine by me. Like I, I knew that going into it. I didn't care. Uh, but people started hitting me up like, Hey, here's our demo. Will you put out our record? And I was like, man, I can't turn this into like a full-time job. Like it's, it's a lot of work and you know, I already have a job. So, um, so I was like, all right, maybe I'll do like a record every year, something real chill, kind of just do the label as a hobby. So that's kind of the, the route I've taken. I, I put out a record for a band called give and take from Indiana and they were, they're really awesome, but I don't even know if they're active now. Um, every time I talk to them, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to be out of town. We can't do this show. Sorry. You know, I would like try to get them on set your goals shows or or, you know, hear, hear from promoters in their area who wanted to put them on shows. And they're like, no, we're good. You so, should have like a um, questionnaire. You should have a questionnaire for the bands, you know, get like 10 questions like, hey, do you guys hang out with each other once a week? <laughs> Does it happen to be at a practice <laughs> space? Do you bring your instruments? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, it kind of goes back to that same scenario. Like, oh well, I can't practice this week. <laughs> well, we're never going to be a real band then, I guess. Um, but what you know, those guys sent me their demo, and I, I really, really liked their first EP, which they put out through a friend. And so I was like, yeah, let's do a full length. So we did it. Um, That's great, though. I mean, but as again, for the next, yeah, as for the next re- release, I guess when it feels right, I'll do another release. What about the change to Epitaph? Putting out something with them, and which is kind of a different. Um, you know, they've got a different level of the amount of people working and the amount of uh, resources and things that they have. That was, yeah, that was incredible for us, and that that's really what allowed us to survive as a band because you know we were at our, our kind of the end of our rope with with Eulogy, and we were like, we can't put our our second record out through Eulogy; it'll it'll kill us. Like, they're not they're not paying us anything, uh, you know, and they're, they're we're not really on good terms with them. So we know they're not going to push the record. Like things had really soured as far as the relationship with him. And, um, we needed something else. So our manager reached out to a few labels and we, you know, we met, like I said, you know, before we, we met with Vagrant, we met with, um, a bunch of labels and, um, and Epitaph seemed to be the most natural fit for us. And they were really cool. You know, Brett totally understood us and we were really all about, you know, the way he feels about music, you know, cause he's a musician and he, he understands the artist. I, I felt like they were the most fair label and they were, they're a really good label. You know, they, they had a great roster and it just seemed like a perfect fit for us. And they were like, yeah, well, we'll just buy you out of your contract. Oh, wow. And that was like a God, a godsend for us. So we put out our next two records with them. I don't know about opportunities as far as like a result from being on the label, but like they really did push us to like a bigger crowd, of course, you know, um, eulogies like, you know, this label from Florida, like a small hardcore label we signed because our friends in the warriors were on eulogy at the time. Um, and when we signed, it was like a staff of 20 something. They had a headquarters, they had two merch warehouses, uh, all the stuff. And by the time we signed at Epitaph, Eulogy was just John running it out of his house. Like wow. It had just deteriorated into almost nothing. How come? And, <laughs> the bands? Uh, yeah. No one cared about I don't know, anymore? yeah. No one cared about bad metalcore anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's not the case. Um, There's a lot of shitty metalcore. 
No, I, I honestly think, you know, maybe his uh, maybe his reputation kind of came back to bite him a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know? People just maybe didn't want to work with him after a while. or I don't know. I don't really know how he mismanaged it into the ground, but he did. Yeah. And Epitaph is just like a great team, and they, they really took care of us. So, uh, you know, the distro was better, and a lot more people were checking us out. There was no really no downside to, to switching to Epitaph. So yeah, um, I feel like it was really good for us. And we had a, a real budget. We worked with a real producer, and we put out. You know, our first record with Epitaph was "This Will Be the Death of Us," and we were all really really proud of that. We had tons of fun making that record, and we loved the way it came out. Whereas with Mutiny, it was kind of like rushed, and we didn't have much time. And even though we were working with an awesome producer, it was like. Uh, almost a stressful scenario and we and we still didn't really know what we were doing you know what i mean yeah by the time we were we were in the studio for a second record with epitaph we had a real budget we were actually ready and we we knew what to do and we knew what we wanted to sound like honestly like we are zero percent motivated by money at this point really like zero percent like amazing whereas you know it's it's weird because for the last like decade it was like okay how are we going to survive how are we going to pay our bills and like I said, for the first maybe 10 years, we didn't. And then I think around 2008, so I guess, I, I don't know, it took like five years maybe to, to start actually like making a little <laughs> bit of money. And then eventually we were paying our rent and then we were making money. Now, this time around, it's, it's so different because like I said, we're, we've got our own careers and we don't need the band. We don't really rely on the band to make us money. So it's just, it's just like a fun little vacation. And so... If we can find someone to put out the record, and we have, and, you know, they're going to pay for it, and we've got the time, we might as well just do another record just for us. And if people don't like it, that's fine. We just want to put out the best record we can, and we want to be happy with it. Like, as long as everyone else in my band is happy with the record, like, that's the best I could hope for. Themes will always be there. Here's my take on it. And we, we actually talked about some of this stuff because... We were, you know, when we were writing some of these new songs, Jordan and I had a long talk about, like, what's what's relevant now, you know? And it's easy when you get older to get out of touch with what's, what's relevant and what people are listening to. And, like, we talked about how, uh, you know, the fast part has almost gone extinct, you know? And, like, there's bands' bands, which I'm sure you're familiar with the term, like, bands that are loved by all the other bands except no one seems to appreciate them as much as they should. They shouldn't be as, they're not as big as they should be. Like an example of that was the Swellers. Like, and I think it's just because that sound has kind of fallen off with a lot of the younger kids now. Like fast parts aren't really uh, present as they used to be, you know? And, uh, and even though the Swellers are like excellent musicians and incredible songwriters, they never, they never did like many headlining tours and they, they never got, Foo Fighters big, which is what I felt like they deserved to be. Like they should have been on the radio. They were such an incredible band. I think what it what it takes is just time. It's you just kind of got to go with the flow. And you can't be something you're not. You're just going to write the music that you want to write. And at the end of the day, that's what's most important. But it's not always going to strike a chord with people. And 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 timing with that really is everything. So like especially in hardcore, it's super easy to see. Like it comes in waves. Like okay, well you know the straight edge hardcore band thing isn't really big right now or like the youth crew thing kind of fell off but after a certain number of years it's acceptable for that to come back again so then it explodes again you know (laughs) like uh like right now the 90s thing is really big in almost every genre you know there's a lot of bands doing like the 90s grunge like shoegaze kind of sound in the quote-unquote emo world you know you've got like turnover and balance and composure and and uh all these bands and then in hardcore, it's it's almost cool to do like a '90s like industrial heavy kind of thing. Like, you know, you've got bands like Knocked Loose that sound very similar to Disembodied, and and even like the first Corn record or like Machine Head. You know, they sound yeah. like these really heavy '90s bands. Um, it, so it, it just sort of goes in waves. You're actually now that you mention that, you're right. I was it. I love that first Machine Head record. Uh, oh, yeah, it's so good. Burn my eyes. I listened to that one. Now that I think about it, that record, I know the 12th track as much as I know the first track. Funny you bring that, that record up. Why? Because you're like, we're on an emo because, podcast and Tom's talking about Machine well, Head. <laughs> well, that too. I feel like we've barely talked about emo this whole time. It's but fine. Um, other than that, 
uh, Machine Head's from the Bay Area. So uh, I actually used to run a print shop with uh, Ben from All Shell Paris and and Carlos from the band Antagony, who's in, in a band called Connoisseur now, which I won't even get into because they're just ridiculous. But um, Ben is really good friends with Rob Flynn, and uh, I would I would drive by his house sometimes and see see his house. It's like, oh, Rob Flynn's like a real dude. He's not like you know he's a, he's a family man. He's got a boat in his yard. You know, it's, like, it's just so funny because I you drive by like you're pretty much your music hero's front yard and you're like wow this guy doesn't live in like an all-black castle somewhere at the top of a mountain he's just like a dude in, a, in the suburbs <laughs> but yeah um let freedom ring with a shotgun blast yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> exactly but yeah it's one of the heaviest records i've ever heard and it's kind of it was kind of cool that it it happened in the bay area yeah what other what other bands in the bay area early on were really big for you uh, there was a band, Redemption eighty seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they didn't get as big outside of the Bay Area. I don't think so, but you know they they were very respected in that world. Um, I grew up going to a lot of Hood shows just because they played like every hardcore show, and, of course and Mike you did. Hood knew everyone. Of course you did. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then uh, of course AFI. Yep. You know, like uh, my my friend invited me to go to their. Uh, their video shoot, I think it was for He Who Laughs Last at Berkeley Square, which is an old venue that uh, is now shut down. And uh, speaking of Hatebreed, which you mentioned earlier, their first 7-inch is also the photo on the back of it, on the end of the nice 7-inch, is shot at Berkeley Square by my friend Zach Solomon, who, really? uh, who actually passed away. But he, Yeah, he was the best friend of my friend Kyle, who went to the high school down the street from my house. Like, It's just like, I don't know, it's... The barrier is very, uh, it's very tight knit. Everyone knows everyone, and it's it's almost very incestuous. Like a lot of the people, you know, do bands together and know each other, and it's a small world there. I have the under the knife seven inch. Yeah, <laughs> it's so heavy. <laughs> it's so heavy. I mean, the thing it's like I was a hardcore was a kid. Changer. I was like a metal hardcore kid. That's the. I mean, if you were on the, I was on the East Coast. You had to have it. It was Connecticut hardcore. Totally. And that's, you know, there was a lot of overlap there in emo with emo and, you know, that's not, not really existent nowadays, but that's because the two scenes have kind of grown so much. Back in the day, it was like, oh, everyone just sort of listened to everything. And I thought that was really cool. And that's one of the reasons I got exposed to emo. You know, it, I, I went to mixed bill shows, you know, saves the day toward with, uh, with fast break. And uh, they would also play shows with like hardcore bands. That was really cool. So I guess uh, because because you're a little bit younger than me, but you're sort of from the same the mindset. I I would love to get your take on. So I thought that was the case. Like I would go to these shows, and yeah, there might have been an emo band, there might have been like a shoegazy '90s thing, and then it's a hardcore band, and then maybe it's a metal hardcore band, and it was all fine. And maybe I didn't like something, or I didn't like Twenty Five to Life, but I liked Chamberlain, or, <laughs> or you know, I mean, I, one of the first times I saw Dashboard, he opened up for Snapcase. Um, you know, that was like, yep, are you kidding you me? So I guess that's now happening in the sort of emo revival. I think a lot of shows are like that. It's all over the place, which I kind of dig. Um, and I think a lot of people are getting into different things, but it's that again, everybody close your ears. If you heard it a thousand times, it's that mid two thousands period where I just feel like it was like fucking package tours make it everything sound the same or maybe i just was so jaded but i felt that era was just like everything sounded the same every tour no you're right i mean it did it's like they kind of found their niche and just sort of ran with it at least the labels seemed to do that and it kind of shaped the way that the scene worked but yeah at a certain point like you know like i think dashboard caught on with the hardcore community first you know and it's because you know, he did an EP on Eulogy, and he is—he is an old hardcore kid, and he was in Further Seems Forever, and uh, what was Andes. the band before that? Vacant Andes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, he's from that scene, and so of course, you know, it's like the first form of viral marketing in a way. It was just like word of mouth, really, and then it just sort of, you know, once the internet started blowing up, everyone just took to the internet, and things spread like wildfire. 
we played in, uh, not last night, but the night before, we played in Atlanta at the Masquerade. And in the other room was the Less Than Jake tour. And we were talking to, uh, to JR after the show. And he, he listens to all kinds of stuff. You know, he's always listened to like hardcore and yep. metal and stuff like that. And we were talking to him about that for a while. It's like, he's like, I, I feel like a dinosaur. I can't even relate to these kids today. Like, what? what is Migos? <laughs> you know, he's like, he's familiar <laughs> with all the songs, but he's like, what the hell is going on? You know, <laughs> we were talking about how they've got like a, a song of, it's like, it's like selling out used to be such a big deal. You know, like if you signed to even a, a label with big distro or a label that carried your record in places like target or, uh, you know, the warehouse RIP, uh, then, you were considered a sellout and the hardcore scene turned its back on you or like the punk scene or whatever. And now it's like, no one even blinks an eye at that stuff. Uh, you know, Migos did this Spotify. I don't know if you've heard it, but they did these Spotify sessions and they just came out with their their own flavor of rat snacks. Those like those chips. And it's like a ranch flavor. And so they put out a song called dab of ranch and it's like, well, to be fair, I guess they sort of coined the term dab or at least made it, popular with their dab song and so i guess they have the right to do that and so the whole song is about like when you need a snack grab for a dab of ranch <laughs> it's like promoting their chips and it's like total textbook like selling out <laughs> it's like no one even cares everyone just thinks it's funny and it's totally acceptable and yeah the rap world's different than than the punk rock world but uh you know it's it's really just a, a true testament to how much things have changed yeah or the you know the, again the fake news or uh someone could say something and then by the next day it's done you've forgotten about it the next cat video flew in and you've forgotten right and that's kind of where our conversation with jr led the other night he's like you know this catch me outside chick within like a week she had a merch store up and running and she's doing a guest spot in a rap video and it's like well you have to do that now you have to cash in on it and get your quick buck while your 15 minutes of fame is, is still going because, you know, Andy Warhol was right. Everyone does have their 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. It used to be five days of fame, and now it's like 15 seconds of fame. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Ken but, Bone yeah, guy. Because the... no one's going to remember that girl in six months. Yeah, it's almost like there's there's people that – or. I, I I still think if if we were if we were that age and those things were happening, we would be completely fine and – and we would understand it and act and be able to oh yeah we're going to do this this and this the whatever it is you adapt it's that it's that you're right it's not that like selling out thing it's like it's it's they don't even blink an eye we're like no i'm going to make a fuckload of money and it was i get yeah and if you if you if you speak out against it it's almost like oh why are you, why are you hating on these guys like they're just trying to like they're just trying to succeed and they're just trying to expose themselves to a big crowd and I mean, I guess it's true. <laughs> why, why, why hate the player? Hate the game? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I kind of joke about emo, and I'll, I'll mention it because it's the podcast with the name. I, I, you know, I sometimes hate the fan more than I hate the music. It, it's funny you say that because my old roommate Kyle, who, who I was talking about earlier, who started Rivalry Records, that was like his mantra when I lived with him. He was like, "Love the music, hate the kids." These hardcore kids, and hardcore is like the most extreme form of this i think they're the worst the kids are just so fickle <laughs> Fickle's so the best the word for it yes you know it's like this is cool next day it's not cool anymore <laughs> and it's crazy they will turn on a dime yeah he like he and he got so frustrated running a record label because he was like man you know this band is so hyped and i'm selling like all these records and then you know, six months later, they're not cool anymore, and I'm stuck with like the third pressing that I just pressed, and they won't even move after I pulled out of the first two pressings in a month. So it's, it's a wild world. What else was Jr. saying? What else was he bitching about? Oh, I don't know. He he was holding a bottle of Jameson, and about half of it was gone. So I think he was just kind of rambling. But <laughs> yeah, just kind of just talking about what it's like being a band after you know ten, twenty years, and and kind of surviving in the modern world we should talk about emo uh any favorite emo bands for you the first emo record i ever bought was sunny day real estate's diary uh i think it was 1998 i bought it at the rasputin in berkeley and i loved that record i loved braid frame and canvas i think i bought that around the same time uh and then in 10th grade 
I think that was maybe a year later, I got four minute mile from the get up kids. And that thing was like a, a game changer for me. I, I thought that was such a cool record and they recorded it in like what a day or two. It's like, it's perfect. And it doesn't need to be polished because the songs are just so good. <laughs> um, cause it's, it's kind of like a rough sounding record. And I think that gives it character. Um, so like, yeah, you know, those early get up kids and saves the day records, you know, I got those in, in middle school and high school and, those were really formative records for me. And then as far as, you know, true emo or screamo or whatever you want to call it, uh, the first hardcore or punk or screamo or whatever you want to call them record that I ever bought was Portraits of the Past. And it was another cool thing for me because they're kind of from the Bay Area too. They were from, uh, I think, Half Moon Bay. And I only, this is how I got into punk and everything. My best friend, Brett, uh, the one that I would book shows with and stuff later on, uh, went to surf camp and his instructor was in Portraits of the Past. And I was like, man, this is like, I've never heard anything like this. This is insane. And he's like, yeah, and there's this place that they play called 924 Gilman. And my friend's older brother goes there sometimes. We should check it out. <laughs> we just went in there one night on new band night and we were like mesmerized. But it's crazy because that, that record, that Portraits of Past record, like, left such an impact on me. And it, you can't even really classify it. It's like they were hardcore and they were punk and they were emo. It's like, it was before any of those genres were really genres. It was like, you know, that thing came out in like 1995. And uh, it was in our own backyard. And it was so awesome. And, and, and even by today's standards, it's incredible. It's like such a good record. Yeah, it's, some, it's interesting how some of those things can still sound relevant today and some things sound like absolute you know garbage can yeah i mean touche amore is pretty much doing that exact style yes and they're killing it you know so and they're they're very relevant and they're still touring and doing well and uh i know that that record was probably a big influence on them i've talked to jeremy about it um and then he reissued the satia he did yeah and that was another one that i listened to a lot in high school at satia uh, discography, and then another one that a friend just sent me was Reversal of Man. Yeah, I dabbled, but I didn't. I didn't ever really get super into them. You dabbed. I, I remember, you know, seeing their, seeing their. Yeah, I dabbed. <laughs> um, I, I saw a lot of their T-shirts growing up, of course, at shows and stuff like that, or patches, I should say. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, again, it's it's interesting your your path into it and out of it, and. It came in the you know hardcore world, but then you kind of went in these different areas, but it all shaped. That's why I said when I first heard Set Your Goals, I was like, there's more to this. And there, there certainly is. Dude. Like, I, like I said, I got into it through the quote-unquote true screamo of Portraits of the Past, and then there was Seisha and You and I and all these bands. Uh, and, then I, and then I went to some punk shows, and then I went to some hardcore shows, and I was like, whoa, this is a whole different level. Like, they're getting involved with the crowd at at such a another like deeper level, you know, and the message is so much deeper. And then, uh, you know, through that, I learned about emo because because of mixed bills. Are there other things that you want to do that you haven't done yet? Music, life, anything? Yeah, I mean, there's still places that your girls wants to play that we've never been to. Uh, we've always wanted to go to Russia. We never made it out there. I'd like to go to China. Never been there. We wanted to use the band as a vehicle to travel places that we would probably never travel to on our own. <laughs> I like that. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so traveling for you and uh, working your nine to five, and hopefully uh, going places that you wouldn't be able to afford the the plane ticket. Yeah, uh, the cool thing about my nine to five is I work for myself, so I can just do it anywhere in the world with Wi-Fi. So, anytime you know we get offered a tour, I'm always like the first to raise my hand and go, "Yeah, let's do it." <laughs> I love playing live. Like there's, there's nothing like it, you know? And, and after, after we took that break, I got a real job. I was like craving stability, you know, because we had been touring like 10 months out of the year. And I was like, man, I just want a nine to five. I just want a square ass job. Like, What's the most adult job I can get? I've never had a salary job. You know, I've always done hourly jobs. Like I'm going to get an adult job. And I tried it and I hated it. I was like, Oh yeah, this is why I toured. <laughs> and, uh, I started in like a warehouse in the, in the receiving department and I worked my way up to headquarters and I was, I was like uh, doing customer service and I was starting to talk to the ops team about 
basically helping run operations. And I was like the 49th employee of this company, this, this like tech-based fashion startup called Stitch Fix, which is now a really big company. It has thousands of employees. But, uh, you know, I, I really started to remember why I hated working a nine-to-five and I really missed touring. And I always wanted to keep touring, but, you know, the means of, of doing that weren't there anymore. So um, one day I got a phone call from my buddy Paul, who actually used to tour manage Throwdown. And he's like, you know, he's like a, he's like a hardcore kid. And he's like, hey, you want to come keep tour managing Snoop Dogg? He's like, you want to come work with me and, and tour with Snoop? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was triple the pay wow. of my salary job. And I was like, yes, I will do that 100%. So I, I put in my two weeks notice the next day. And I did that for a year, but man, every time, every night I would be out with Snoop and it was, it was surreal. It was awesome, but it was also kind of a headache, <laughs> but every night I'd be on, on the side of the stage being like, man, I wish I was playing on stage. Like this is cool, but it's not the same. It's, it's, there's nothing like playing to a crowd and then sort of just feeling the energy. It, it's, it's like, it's like the perfect drug. It's, it's, it gets you high. It gets everyone else in the room high and there's no come down. It's just only positive. So, yeah, as far as what I want to do, like, I just want to keep doing that. I always want to play music, even if it's only, like, a month or two in total every year. I don't ever want to tour full-time again. I'm too old for that crap. You know, 10 months out of the year will drive you nuts. Um, Just because you get home and it's just like any other city. It stops being home at that point. All your friends are working or moved away or have families or school or whatever, job. But um, but I always do want to travel and, and tour as much as I can stand, <laughs> I guess, as much as I can tolerate. 